Welcome to the West Elk Word. I'm your occasional host for this summer, Chad Rich. Today our guest is James Mills, an independent journalist who covers public lands, recreation, and diversity. I caught up with James from the KBUT studios while he is at his home in Wisconsin. We'll hear that conversation in just a moment. Support for KBUT is brought to you by Townie Books and Rumors Coffee and Tea House, serving Allegro organic coffee and fine loose leaf teas. Townie Books stocks new books and can special order anything. Drink coffee, read books, fight evil. Journalist James Mills' recent publications include his book The Adventure Gap, The Changing Face of the Outdoors, and a recent article in Outside Magazine titled This is What Adventure Looks Like. He's also the host of the podcast, The Joy Trip Project, and wrote for the Trust for Public Lands membership magazine. Thanks for joining us today, James. Hey, Chad. Thanks for having me. So I came back from Moab this spring, and I went for a bike ride back here in Crested Butte after biking in Moab. And it wasn't the first time that I noticed that nearly all other users on the bike trails were white. James, is outdoor recreation on public lands a mostly white experience? Yeah, that's a good question, only in that it needs a very detailed and nuanced answer. Because frankly, the the immediate answer is no, absolutely not. I mean, if you take a look at the role that people of color have played in outdoor recreation, quite literally since the very beginning in the creation of the national park system, you know, African Americans in particular, but also Latinos and Asian people have played a role in the development and access to public land. But if you take a look just anecdotally, as you did, and you and you see who you actually observe in the outdoors, you'll find that it's pretty limited in terms of who is spending time. Um, in nature. I think that it, especially if you go to a, a place that's relatively remote like Crested Butte, because it's kind of hard to get to, you know, and you don't have much of a large African-American or uh, African-American presence. I, I think that you might have a existing and, and growing Latino community. But when you take a look at how people spend their leisure time or how people spend their their recreational time outside, it does indeed seem like there's a lot of white people in these activities, but it's not exclusive. But the question ultimately is how can we improve the rates of participation among all segments of the population so that we're not just talking about white people, we're not just talking about people with the disposable income and the leisure time to enjoy outdoor recreational activities. How do we indeed make the outdoors for all? Is there evidence that outdoor recreation is attracting a new clientele, so to say, and becoming more diverse? You know, and it's interesting because if you take a look statistically, uh, rates of participation among African-Americans, let's, let's look at that segment of the population in and of itself, is relatively low compared to their overall percentage of the population. You know, it's arguably uh, safe to say that African-Americans represent 12 to 15 percent of the U.S. population, um, but they represent less than 2 percent of visitors to our national parks. You know, and so when you take a look and you say, all right, so are there indeed more people of color in um, public lands? Uh, the answer could be no, but again, if you take a look anecdotally um, and specifically citing the experiences of a good friend of mine uh, by the name of Shelton Johnson, who is the only permanently stationed African-American park ranger in Yosemite Valley. And he and I have been friends for well over a decade now, and he had related to me in a conversation that we had just two weeks ago about his personal experience seeing people of color in the outdoors. And he said that 10 years ago, if he saw 
one or two people of color, specifically African-Americans, Yosemite in a month, that would be not unusual at all. Um, But now he says that he sees them every day, you know, and so that um, that for whatever reason, and I think that we can take a look at a variety of different reasons, but we are indeed seeing more people of color in national parks like Yosemite. But when you take a look just a mile up the trail and the more remote we get, um, the, those numbers start to drop off again. You know, and so, um, you know, when we're talking about destination sites like Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, rates of participation appear to be visually higher. But if you take a look at the uh, the areas of more remote access, like the um, the trail leading up to uh, Yosemite Falls, for example, or you know some of the um, the back roads of Grand Teton National Park, not too far from uh, Yellowstone, or if you take a look at the Kaibab Trail on the floor, you know, leading down to the floor of the Grand Canyon, again, we don't see very many people of color there, but the numbers are starting to percolate up. But again, the numbers are still relatively low, and I think that what we need to continually do is to keep track of, of the rates of participation and do what we can to increase them. James, would you consider the destinations that you might drive to, such as trailheads or campgrounds or picnic and day use areas, less risky compared to, like you said, a mile or so up the trails that may be perceived as being more adventurous? Are you saying there's some evidence that certain populations are more averse or less likely to engage in something they might think is more risky? <laughs> well, again, I mean, the, the simple answer is yes. Um, but the, the more nuanced, nuanced answer is, well, it really depends. Because, I mean, what it depends on is people's comfort level. You know, and that's frankly true of a wide cross-section of the, of the American people. Um, because, I mean, if you take a look at the people that you do see in the backcountry, what do they look like? They're incredibly fit. They're, they're pretty physically fit. They've got the latest gear, so that indicates a certain amount of, of um, financial advantage. And also, if you take a look at, you know, their, their skill levels, um, they're probably relatively high. And so if you take a look at populations that are disproportionately underrepresented in outdoor recreation, um, you know, and, and again, race notwithstanding, I mean, we can take race off the table. We can just look exclusively at socioeconomics. Um, you know, people from lower income families don't have the wherewithal or the ability to have the disposable income and leisure time to go into the, the deeper, more hard to access backcountry. Um, you know, the same thing is also true of levels of experience. I mean, if you grew up in a family that doesn't have the advantage of that, you know, weekend getaway to the cabin when you're five years old, or uncles or grandparents that have had, you know, a long experience of spending time in nature to pass along um, skills and appreciation for the outdoors. I mean, if you're talking about populations where those things aren't happening, you're going to see a relatively low rate of participation among that group. Now, if we put race back on the table and you take a look at how um, these same disparities fall along lines socioeconomically, you know, when you have um, you know, systematic levels of, of um, you know, disenfranchisement among African Americans, you're going to have relatively low incomes. Okay, when, you're t- when you take a look at um, the de facto segregation of redlining in the 1960s all the way through the 1980s, that 
literally relegated people of color, African-Americans in particular, to our cities, you're going to have a limited experience of spending time in backcountry areas, in, in, in international parks or in our wilderness areas. You know, and then you um, lend to that the lack of intergenerational experience. I mean, again, if you're just um, you know, coming off of of um, poverty, perhaps, or you know, coming literally just in off um, from um, you know um, low-income assistance. The last thing you're going to probably do is invest your time and money in in an experience that's going to make you uncomfortable, like camping. <laughs> you know, you're not going to subject yourself to uh, cold temperatures. You know, the risk of rain or bug bites or rigorous activity. You're probably going to invest your money in something that is infinitely more leisurable. You'll probably be more inclined to take a cruise than a backpacking trip, even though that cruise might be more expensive in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Because it is kind of an all-inclusive experience, you're going to make that investment and not have to purchase a tent or a sleeping bag or a pair of hiking boots and a long car ride. There's a lot of different things that kind of create this division between who spends time in our wilderness areas and who doesn't that falls very clearly along racial and socioeconomic lines. And when we stop and we think about how we can hopefully correct these things, believe it or not, I mean, one of the best ways to do that is by improving the working and living conditions, um, both in terms of housing and employment um, to underrepresented segments of the population where they live. You know, and so that when these communities ultimately have more leisure time and disposable income and they're a little further away from the stresses of life, they might be able to more practically consider the possibilities of spending time, you know, in a backwoods natural environment that is hopefully going to give them an experience that we commonly call adventure. This is the West Elk Word here on Community Radio KBUT. I'm Chad Rich with journalist James Mills. We're discussing growing diversity in outdoor recreation and access to public lands among diverse populations. James, what effect does the location of public lands and their proximity to certain populations have on their use? Yeah, I think proximity is actually a really good indication of who will use natural wilderness areas and public lands and who won't. At the end of the day, I mean, everybody has to get there somehow. While being close to a national park can make all the difference in the world, you know, having access to affordable transportation is probably a better indication of whether or not people will use nearby public land. Because, I mean, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. The San Gabriel Mountains were, you know, a two and a half to three hour drive away from my front door. You know, as a kid, uh, my parents took me um, to places like that because my, you know, my dad had a, you know, a 1976 Jeep Wagoneer. But other people in our community, other people in my neighborhood didn't have those same resources, you know, and so it's not just a question of proximity. I think it also has a lot to do with other limiting factors when it comes to access. You could live right in the middle of a, of a national park and not have the ability to, to afford a pair of hiking boots or a tent or a sleeping bag. And also, you would ultimately need or hopefully have the ability to have someone teach you how to spend time in the outdoors. It's kind of a misnomer to suggest that, well, all you have to do is walk out your front door. Well, that's good for a day trip, but you need skills and expertise to be able to comfortably 
cook outside, to sleep outside, to you know navigate long distances outside. So it's not strictly a question of proximity. I think it also has to do with the experiences of culture within the society you live. James, are we seeing people from certain ethnicities or people with different backgrounds gravitating towards specific types of outdoor recreation on our public lands? Ooh, that's a really good question. And I'm going to I'm going to be pre- I'm going to prepare to suggest that we're seeing a, a increase across the board, but I think that um, we're probably seeing higher degrees of, of increase to access with the lowest thresholds of of experience. So backpacking, hiking, that's easy technically because <laughs> I mean all really the biggest skill that it requires the biggest capability that it requires is the ability to walk to literally put one foot in front of the other. But whitewater rafting requires um, skill and expertise that the average person just doesn't have. Downhill skiing, uh, quite a bit of equipment as well as training and expertise. I would imagine just you know anecdotally that we're probably seeing more people hiking, you know, cycling is a little bit more accessible. You can have a $2,000 road bike, but you can just as easily get away with a $80 Huffy that you can get at the um, at a thrift shop. I think that barriers of access are going to be the, the primary factor in terms of increasing rates of participation. The more expensive that you get, the lower the rates of participation are, are likely going to be. There, I've seen anecdotally an uptick in African-American um, skydivers. But again, that is an incredibly expensive outdoor activity to get into. The same thing would be um, true of paragliding or base jumping. Again, increased threshold of access regarding skill and also equipment. For years, Crested Butte Mountain Resort hosted the National Brotherhood of Skiers. They're an African-American men's organization who get together to ski. They're going to Steamboat this year. They're one example of organizations formed by people of color to promote outdoor recreation or adventure, which is often done on public lands. Are there other examples similar to the National Brotherhood of Skiers that, say, encourages Latinos to go camping or people of Asian descent to somehow participate in the outdoors? Absolutely. And what you just described is an affinity group, you know, a group that represents a particular socioeconomic or demographic reality, you know, and in this case, we're talking about people of color. And so there's an organization based in Oakland that is um, gaining huge ground in this um, arena called Outdoor Afro. They're represented in in 30 states um, and have well over 100 leaders nationwide. And that's a a group that is continuing to grow. Another organization um, that was founded in Sacramento, California, called Latino Outdoors. Same thing. They're expanding their efforts to encourage people of color to spend time in the outdoors, specifically in the Latino communities across the country. There's an organization that newly formed about two years ago called Natives Outdoors that represents the interests of Native American people. And even in the LGBTQ community, there's an organization called Out There Adventures that um, encourages primarily youth, but also people who um, um, self-identify as queer as spending time in the outdoors as well. And I think that a big part of this is basically to create a safe space where people can experience the outdoors in meaningful ways, but at the same time, 
feel safe just by you know, not being the one person of color at the ski hill or on the trail or on the river so that um, they aren't made to stand out and they can actually kind of ease into the experience to allow it to be a little bit more normalized to help take some of the pressure off and then ultimately allow them to come into their own as avid not only outdoor recreation enthusiasts but also environmental stewards and i think that's at the key frankly the core of being able to create groups of people that self-identify as outdoor people, but also within their identity as a person of color can basically say, yes, this is something that we as a people do. These segments you just mentioned would represent some growth or at even a new segment in the outdoors market. Which brings me to my next point. You worked as a sales rep for the North Face in the Midwest in the 90s, and you pushed puffies and backpacks. You're African-American. I don't know if we mentioned that yet. As you sold gear to retailers, you encouraged other people of color to get into the outdoors. The notion you heard was, it's not your market. That kept coming up from your superiors. Could you discuss how these other segments that you recognized opportunity in weren't, quote, your market? Yeah, and I mean, to this day, I mean, it's been 20 years since, you know, someone has actually came come right out and said that. Um, I still have a hard time reconciling the original notion because, you know, frankly, as, um, you know, an aspiring salesperson in my 20s, it just seemed like an, an easy thing to me. I mean, like they were liter- literally leaving money on the table. You know, and if there is an entire segment of the U.S. population that we weren't directly speaking to, it just seemed like a really easy thing to you know create marketing initiatives that would address their interest. Didn't have to make any substantive changes to the products. It was simply just a matter of, of changing our outreach message. And I think that was the problem that companies like the North Face, and frankly, this is true of every company in the industry, was facing at the time. I mean, whether we're talking about, you know, Patagonia, Marmot, Sierra Designs, Mountain Hardware, I mean, they, all these companies literally were faced with the same dilemma. To be charitable, in my opinions on this, I frankly, because frankly, I, I've, I've yet to meet a single person in the outdoor industry that just wasn't an, an amazing individual. I mean, there's not, I mean, I had the best possible experience when it came to being accepted and being encouraged and being supported in my career in outdoor recreation. I think the biggest problem was that no one wants to do something badly or to look stupid or to find themselves in an environment where they're saying, um, you know, I want to ingratiate myself to someone, but the last thing I want to do is say, because you're black or because you're Latino or because you're Asian. The problem was that I think that they really struggled with being able to to do it in an authentic way. I think they really struggled with the notion of even admitting that there was a problem. You know, and the problem was quite frankly that none of the marketing reflected people of color. And it's kind of a chicken and egg situation because in their experience, they weren't seeing any African-Americans, Latinos, Asians out there doing stuff because they weren't looking for people of color out there doing those things. And that created a, um, a disconnect and they're thinking, well, that just means that these people don't do that. Well, the reality is that they just weren't going to where these people were doing these things. And so the great thing that has really changed 
and this may be a better answer to your question, is that the rise of social media and the accessibility of Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc., that um, allows you to post images and videos, people of color have actually taken over the narrative. And they're showing themselves as being out there doing these things. And so now that the behavior is a little bit more normalized, I mean, I think that organizations in the industry of outdoor recreation now have more clearly and more easily identified uh, viable role models and ambassadors that they can ultimately pick from. You know, and they can see that there is a, um, a very well-regarded snowboarder with a great Instagram following that can be adopted as an athlete ambassador. You know, there is a person who is doing incredible things in trail running that isn't in their general circle, but they've got 100,000 followers on Twitter. You know, and now all of a sudden, you know, they can say, well, maybe this is our market. You know, maybe there is an opportunity here. And if we can show these people in our products doing the things that they do in our products, maybe we can directly reach out and engage this community so that now they become our market. This is the West Elk Word Community Affairs here on KBUT. I'm your host, Chad Rich, with journalist James Mills. We're discussing growing diversity and inclusiveness in outdoor recreation and public land use. James, when you switched from sales to journalism to make a living, what did you notice about the outdoors as you began covering the topic? Did you notice that it was actually more diverse than you once thought? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> yeah, and, and frankly, I think a, the biggest thing that became clear to me was that um, the lack of diversity was not going to change unless I did something to change it myself. And, and that may sound like an odd thing to say, but, you know, I, I was witnessing a lot of things going on and I, and I decided that as a journalist, the best thing that I could do was to, you know, try to identify and, and point these things out, you know, and this is back in the, um, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands, when I finally made the transition from sales and marketing to journalism, which is basically just another form of storytelling. You know, I literally went out of my way to, to raise awareness for the importance of uh, uh, well, actually, rather the existence of the disparity between who spends time in nature and who doesn't, you know, to actually start writing a series of articles identifying the problem, but also pointing out those examples of people of color and their role in outdoor recreation. Again, going all the way back to the creation of Yosemite um, and the uh, the presence of African-American members of the U.S. Cavalry, a unit known as the Buffalo Soldiers, that for three summers did many of the same jobs that National Park Rangers do today, uh, building roads, putting out fires, you know, patrolling the park for, for poachers, making sure that the visitors were allowed to remain safe in their enjoyment of nature. You know, that's a story that I wasn't told as a young person and, and didn't even hear it um, directly um, until I was well into my um, my early 30s, um, you know, and so it once we take the time to tell these stories, you know, we start to realize that that there is quite a bit of diversity out there, but we need to do more to tell these stories directly so that we can encourage more diversity. And I can tell you that in the 10 years that I've been working on this almost exclusively since 2008, there has indeed been a change. And um, I'm not going to take full responsibility for it, but, you know, 
um, now there's many writers that are, are, are telling these stories. Um, but, you know, back at the, um, at the turn of the century and, you know, early into my career as a journalist, there really weren't that many stories out there that were being told. You know, there, there, there were people of color out there doing, you know, cool and exciting things outside, um, but we weren't sharing their narratives. You know, and I think that's the thing that has most sensitively changed as we begin to tell their stories. Um, more and more people say, hey, I've got a story, too. Oh, and I've got a story. And hey, did you hear about this guy? You know, and, and once you start doing that, you know, the stories start coming up and people say, well, I didn't know that was even possible. Maybe I can do it. I never really considered taking my kids to a place like that. Oh, wow. You know, my girlfriend has talked about wanting to go backpacking. But now I know that this is something that I can do because I, I see this person has done it and I can call him up or hit him up on Facebook for some advice. Over the last decade, that's really what has changed. You know, we've elevated the conversation to the point where now people are talking about these things. And they're also doing a better job of trying to help encourage people that they haven't seen before experience nature in a meaningful way. Stories help develop history and traditions. But without these, efforts are needed to get people into the outdoors. Are there national efforts from the feds to encourage diversity in recreation in the use of public lands? Well, I think the, the best, most exciting program that I can directly point to is something that came out of the Obama administration called Every Kid in a Park, um, where basically they made it possible for every fourth grader in the United States to get a free park pass for a season. And it wasn't just for that kid. It was basically that kid and everybody in their car, you know, and so that basically a family could take all of their kids to a national park. And so um, and the, the idea for this particular program was to um, reduce the financial barrier to access because I mean, a, um, a season pass for a national park is I've got what is it now like 80 bucks. Um, you know, and I think that if you can, you know, take that part of it off the table, you know, you can take communities or or groups that have said, oh gosh, that's a little bit pricier for me. But hey, if we can go for free, definitely let's make a family vacation out of it. But unfortunately, you know, it definitely requires to have engaged parents, you know, and, and that's sadly something that really hasn't been. Um, it, it's something that that hasn't been happening on at least on a national basis, and definitely not you know, at the federal level, at least no programs that I know of directly. But if we can, you know, take the time to not just engage kids, but to engage their parents, uh, I think that there's some really great opportunities there. And, um, you know, from a you know national park, national forest, um, you know, Bureau of Land Management perspective, I think that there's an amazing opportunity, you know, to create interpretation programs that um, try to help educate young people on the history, heritage, and legacy of outdoor recreation that goes beyond the um, the typical impression of who you imagine when you think of someone who spends time in the outdoors. You know, so that young people and their families start seeing themselves as part of the narrative. You know, whether or not they are white or black or Native American or Hispanic or whatever, they are indeed American citizens, and that's basically part of their of their legacy as you know people on you know who live in this country and i'm hoping that if we can continue to support um proactive interpretation in our national parks making people feel welcome in visitor centers at trailheads because we now have signage 
and storytelling that goes directly along the lines of telling everyone's stories, not just the ones that we think of immediately. I think then we'll have an opportunity to hopefully encourage you know a broader, more diverse cross section of the of the American public that utilizes our public lands. James Mills is an independent journalist who covers recreation, public lands, and diversity. Thanks for joining us today, James. Hey, Chet. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the West Elk Word. To hear this program again, head to kbut.org and click the Programs tab. For the West Elk Word, I'm Chad Rich, and we'll see you out there.